Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Episode 223 of The Bowery Boys, The Algonquin Roundtable. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today we visit the New York of the Roaring Twenties. It's a city of speakeasies, chorus girls, and gangsters. Where every night, Greg, was opening night on Broadway. Except, of course, for Sunday night and Monday night. <laughs> so it might seem rather odd to do what seems to be a modest show about a group of folk who met for lunch, you know, most days of the week for almost 10 years at a Midtown hotel. But this wasn't just any group, of course, because this was a period dominated by the city's daily papers. They had both morning and afternoon papers, and their reporters and columnists churned out pieces at a breakneck speed that kept the city and the nation hooked. These were some of the best-known personalities in the country. And they were more than just newspaper writers and editors. They were also novelists. They were actors. Sometimes those columnists and those novelists would be actors. <laughs> and they were also critics and playwrights and theatrical press agents. You know, at work, these people were generating what New York and the nation was reading and was seen performed on stage, and later would hear over their radios or see on a movie screen. Now, you may be familiar with perhaps the best-known name of the roundtable. That would be Dorothy Parker. But in our story today, we're also going to shine a spotlight on some of the lesser-known figures, people who were you know, quite famous back in the day and were up-and-coming personalities of the 1920s, and people who have sadly, over the decades, been forgotten about. And so we're going to remind you of their legacies and the camaraderie and good times that they had here. <laughs> uh, they did have good times, right? Because they would not just gather together to lunch, but they would actually gather together to pun <laughs> and to sort of like trade barbs and witticisms. I mean, if only there was some kind of table that we could go to today <laughs> to do the same thing, we'd be there. If they'd have us. If they'd course. have us, of course. If we could get past the velvet rope. So today we're going to eavesdrop on this special group of people. And we have a surprise guest at the end of the show who's going to help us re-envision the world of the Algonquin. So pull up a chair and gather your wits and join us for lunch at the Algonquin Roundtable.
All right, Tom, we're settling down here for a nice meal and a great conversation. Mm -hmm. Before we get started, let's situate the place and time that we will be visiting today in this show. Well, the place is obviously the Algonquin Hotel on 44th Street. We'll get to that in a second. Um, But the time is New York just after the end of World War I. Now, Germany had surrendered on November 11th. 1918, uh, though the war wouldn't formally end until the Treaty of Versailles had had been signed in June of 1919. So the time period that we're covering here really stretches from the end of the war, um, because so many of the people we're talking about served in the war, many of them as journalists. Yeah, the war figures into the story in a very particular way. Right. And once they have come back is really in 1919 when these lunches and these gatherings started and stretched through the 1920s all the way up until the end of the decade. And that's largely seen as when when the roundtable ended. And we'll get to that later. But we're talking about New York and Midtown in the 1920s. The Jazz Age. When New York's population in 1920 reached about five and a half or 5.6 million residents. So this was the heyday of Midtown Manhattan, in particular also of Broadway and all the theaters which were lining these streets. This The theater scene was popular culture. New York had 80 Broadway theaters. Imagine that. Plus the vaudeville theaters Um, were performing acts as well. So there were more than 200 shows opening every year on Broadway, which gave theater critics and Broadway gossip columnists really a lot to write about. But by this point, the theater district is pretty much locked into the same streets that it is today, which are essentially above 42nd Street and below 57th Street. Most of them, right. right. In midtown Manhattan. Right. And, you know, the subway had just opened in 1904. Longacre Square had been renamed Times Square, as we've talked about many times before. And so this is really just 15 years after all of that happened. And during those 15 years, many, many Broadway theaters were constructed in that geographical area. And while many of these theaters uh, that were constructed in this era are still with us today, one that has disappeared, one notable theater that has disappeared, was located right across the street from the Algonquin, and that was the Hippodrome. This place was massive. It ran along 6th Avenue from West 43rd to West 44th Street, and it sat more than 5,000 spectators, and it was totally over the top. It almost has more akin to Madison Square Garden than a sort of traditional Broadway theater. Just in terms of what they could stage, right? (laughs) They they could stage naval battles on stage. They had outlandish thing. They would have have water tanks full of swimmers. They would have dozens of animals of different kinds, casts of hundreds. Elephants. I don't know about hundreds of elephants, but they'd have (laughs) elephants on stage. A great number. Right. And a fun fact, today the office building that sits on the former site of the theater is still called the Hippodrome. Well, one of our meeting spots when we discuss shows is actually that Gregory's Coffee that's in the Hippodrome building. So it's nice to finally get to properly talk about this particular space finally. Which one? The Gregory's Coffee? <laughs> well, all of it. But, <laughs> but yes, the Hippodrome. 
Now, you mentioned all these columnists, newspaper columnists. The center of publication of newspapers was mm-hmm. up in Midtown by this time. Much of it had moved up from Printer's Row down by uh, down by City Hall, but some were still down there. Others had moved, of course, like the Herald, to Herald Square. Mm-hmm. And the Times obviously moved to Times Square in 1904. But yes, the city had 16 daily papers in 1919. There were morning papers. There were evening papers. Uh, many people read, you know, two a day, one in the morning, one at night. I'm just imagining Midtown Manhattan just being a sea of showgirls and newsies. <laughs> <laughs> well, and reporters and columnists. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the papers, you know, just as the theaters were mass entertainment and popular culture, the newspapers represented mass media, you know. Several of the journalists we'll be discussing in today's show had served in the war, and many had already been reporters um, and assigned to the, the Army's paper, the Stars and Stripes, which had offices in Paris. And once they came back after the war in 1919, they headed back to their newsrooms and got back to work. I would even say this association with Stars and Stripes, the the military newspaper here, the wartime newspaper, actually catapulted a lot of their careers because they they made a lot of new friendships, a lot of collaborations during that period. A lot of writers who were perhaps not seen as serious really proved themselves in this newspaper and came back uh, to great acclaim. Now add to this this busy cityscape here, Greg, the fact that the 18th Amendment which banned the sale and production of alcoholic beverages in the U.S., took effect in January of 1920 and lasted throughout the 1920s until 1933. Of course, New Yorkers continued to drink, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. thanks, thanks to the tens of thousands of illegal drinking establishments, which we call speakeasies or, or speaks. And I've I've seen estimates that there were between... 30,000 and maybe even up to 100,000 <laughs> illegal speakeasies operating in the city during that decade. Well, if there was no regulation, technically anyone could open a speakeasy. So, you know, your front, so your living room, so your parlor could be a speakeasy. So I, I, I don't <laughs> doubt that number. Your parlor sometimes is a speakeasy. <laughs> sometimes two or three. <laughs> All right, Tom, you've brought us theaters. Mm-hmm. You've brought us the offices of newspapers. You've brought us speakeasies. Right. And to this, we'll also add the hotels, because as the city was moving farther uptown and new construction techniques were being introduced, including, of course, the rise of the elevator. All of this meant that the city was going through an upheaval. Blocks and blocks of Midtown were being transformed. Homes and small structures were being demolished, wiped away and replaced by more profitable buildings like department stores, apartment buildings, and, of course, hotels, which were needed to accommodate the mass tourism and business travel trade that was also developing. Along with the trend of living in a hotel, like hotels just weren't for people from out of town. They weren't just for tourists. They were for New Yorkers to stay in long term. That's right, which had become fashionable and acceptable. Well, looking just at West 44th Street uh, between 5th and 6th, In 1900, both the Royalton on the south side of the street and the Iroquois on the north side of 44th opened. And two years later, on November 22nd, 1902, the 12-story Algonquin Hotel was opened with 192 rooms. First, uh, it was intended to be a, a more residential hotel, but they later realized that they could make more money 
in short-term rentals, you know, for overnighters. So the Algonquin Hotel, Mm -hmm. which is next to the Iroquois Hotel. Right. Are you sensing sensing a a trend here? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. The the first owners of the hotel, Albert Foster and his wife, Ann Stetson Foster, were in fact inspired by the Iroquois and thus named their hotel for a Native American tribe as well. And according to Kevin Fitzpatrick in his book, The Algonquin Roundtable, owner Ann Stetson Foster said between the two hotels, quote, it will make a veritable Indian settlement. You mean a Native American settlement? Well, she that's not what she said, unfortunately. <laughs> and these aren't the only buildings that are standing today in New York that are inspired by Native American culture. If you remember, the Dakota Apartments, mm-hmm. which was an actual apartment building, is also built with this particular theme. The Algonquin was designed by Goldwyn Starrett, uh, who had trained with Daniel Burnham and Company in Chicago before moving to New York to work for the George Fuller Company, who we talked about in the Flatiron podcast. Starrett formed his own company with his brothers in 1899, and he built the Algonquin, which was their first big project, in just about seven months of 1902. And he would go on to design a few other notable buildings in New York before his early death in 1918, including the Lord and Taylor Department Store on at hmm. 424 Fifth Avenue. And the building was owned by the Fosters. Well, they right, they were the initial owners, though they didn't stay in charge for very long because of a messy divorce, which broke things up. However, they did something very very notable in Algonquin history. They hired a man named Frank Case as their general manager, and this would be a position that he would hold on to for decades. They sold just the next year, 1903, to a Dr. Andrew Smith and his son, Dr. Davison Smith, and the hotel would stay in the Smith family for much of the 1920s until 1927 when they would sell it to Frank Case, and Case would hold on to it and run it with, you know, celebrity flair for nearly two decades. Oh, wow. And, two decades. So until no, he passed away in 1946. So not a briefcase. Oh. <laughs> you are ready for the vicious circle, Greg. You are ready for the round table. Uh, no, not a briefcase. Okay. <laughs> and so by the start, then, of our roundtable story... The Algonquin is open, and it's already established itself as a popular spot for people in the theater business and for journalists because it was located near so many Broadway theaters and and also near so many newspaper mm-hmm. and magazine offices. You know, it's interesting to contrast the, the world that you just set up here because mm-hmm. today we, we still have Broadway theaters, but not near as many as we used to. There are, of course, not nearly as many newspapers. There are no, almost no speakeasies, plenty of bars, but only just a few speakeasies. Some pretend to be speakeasies. But what we don't have today is something that was truly one of a kind back in the 1910s and 1920s, and that was the flamboyant, somewhat vain, rotund figure of Alexander Wolcott. Alexander Wolcott. He is the reason for the roundtable's existence, which I shall explain. Mr. Wolcott was born in New Jersey and even as a young man became a staff member at the New York Times right there at their brand new office here in Times Square. And eventually in 1914, he became the drama critic for the New York Times. And he made quite a name for himself. Oh, yeah. He was a very spicy writer. In fact, he was so opinionated and upset so many powerful people with his 
caustic reviews that he was even banned by the Schubert brothers from Schubert theaters <laughs> and went all the way through the courts. And somehow managed to keep this as a career, even though... I think it made him even more famous. Probably. Well, during World War One, he was one... One of many who enlisted, eventually working uh, for the military newspaper, Stars and Stripes, which you mentioned. His editor was a man named Harold Ross, who will come into the story a little bit later. But let's just say some major journalistic bonds are being built here at this paper. So they were making connections uh, that would advance her careers on the other side of the ocean. Yeah, when he got back after the war in 1919, he returned to being a drama critic, but now his reputation was even more lauded. As you said, he was an exceptionally tough and catty writer, but by this point, very powerful. And it's the quest to get the attention of Mr. Walcott that becomes the reason, indirectly, for the Algonquin Roundtable. How is that? Well, one day in June of 1919, Murdoch Pemberton, who was the press agent of the Hippodrome, okay, right there right across on, the street, right, right there at Sixth uh, Avenue, called up Mr. Walcott and invited him out to lunch. Now, Pemberton knew that Walcott liked to eat, and he certainly loved his desserts. He also knew that the Algonquin dining room served incredible angel food cake. So he wanted to really butter him up, <laughs> literally and figuratively here. Okay. So Pemberton is buttering up Wolcott with angel food cake. Yes, here at the Algonquin dining room. He was luring Wolcott here on behalf of his friend John Peter Tuohy, who was a theatrical promoter and agent. Okay. And Mr. Tuohy was representing a rising young playwright that... He wanted to get in front of Walcott. And so the hope was that by filling Mr. Walcott with cake and, Angel a, food cake. Angel food cake and a delicious lunch, that they could convince him to write some positive words about this young playwright. Mm -hmm. Well, what happened instead, now keep in mind, Walcott just got back from the war, full of all these stories. And, you know, he was also full of himself. So he went on and on during that lunch, telling all these interesting stories, I imagine. And after all, he had a captive audience here who wanted to talk to him, and he had cake. So he, <laughs> he was... He had his cake and was speaking it, too. <laughs> yes. But but he was just talking about himself here at this lunch? Oh, right. Yes. And he always had this line, because he, he did keep doing this throughout his career, and he always started with the, with the following phrase. He would say, when I was in the theater of war, you know, and then uh, to which at a later point, a publicist actually butted in and responded and said, Alec, if you were ever in the theater of war, it was in the last row seat nearest the exit. That is a theatrical <laughs> diss if ever there yes. was one. Um, and so long story short, they were unsuccessful in persuading this revered critic to promote this young playwright. Wait, who was the playwright? You never said. Oh, oh, well, I mean, fortunately, this gentleman didn't really need the extra promotion. This was an up-and-coming playwright named Eugene O'Neill. Ah, he would end up doing just fine. <laughs> yes. In fact, the following year, he would win the Pulitzer Prize uh, for the story Beyond the Horizon, of, and of course would go on to pen such classics as The Iceman Cometh and Long Day's Journey into Night. But, but this meal, this, this Alexander Wolcott monologue took place, <laughs> this lunch took place at the Algonquin. Is this what kicked mm -hmm. off this whole tradition? What's well, the bud 
it's the seed of this grand tradition because essentially what happened is Pemberton and Tui, his his lunch companions, decided well they had such a great time anyway, and they liked to also kind of egg Wolcott on. And he loved to talk about himself. So they thought, well, let's have another lunch with Wolcott the following week. Being a man of great vanity who loved the attention, even if it was in the form of a sarcastic barb. So they decided the next week that the lunch would actually be a roast where they would gather like a, a chicken roast like a rotisserie <laughs> no, like a comedy roast oh. where they all <laughs> where they all sit around in a room and they all kind of like lovingly mock the subject of the roast right like we'd see on comedy central today sure yeah or the white house correspondence dinner do they still have that <laughs> Anyway, so the pair invited all of Wolcott's friends and business acquaintances that had offices around the Algonquin, who were nearby, that could escape during their lunch break. And who all wanted to see Wolcott roasted. <laughs> yes, who all loved him, hated him, or had Feared very com- <laughs> yes, or complicated relationships in between. What's interesting is the list that Pemberton and Tui came up with would eventually become the core members of the round table. It was about 20 people in all. And, and we'll get to that guest list. We'll, we'll mention their names a little bit later. Yes, yes. But imagine like 20 people. They were gathered not in the main dining room, which would become known as where the round table would be, but in a side room called the pergola room. So they all had a marvelous time this particular afternoon, mocking Wolcott, kind of like goading him. There was a gigantic green banner that had, was designed by the costume department at the Hippodrome that purposefully like misspelled his name oh, because he was very sensitive about that right very he, he has two o's two l's and two, two t's, t's right right yeah the the banner actually said a wall caught <laughs> which was a military pun and also a misspelling of his name wow a double pun but there were programs and signs and there was even a little agenda and his name was misspelled in all different ways on purpose <laughs> to kind of like get to get under his skin he must have loved it the whole group must have loved it everyone loved it everyone loved that he was he liked talking about himself and they all had a great time kind of making fun of him so you know as they were all leaving you know, winding up and leaving for the afternoon, somebody, mm-hmm. and now I've read some accounts that said it was actually Mr. Tui that said this, but other accounts say we don't know because it's really part of the legend. Well, anyway, somebody, as they were leaving, turned and said, why don't we do this every day? And so they did for nearly a decade. They would eventually be moved into a large round table in the main dining room, and it would be around this table that some of the most famous lunch gatherings in New York City history would be held. And we will introduce you to some of the most famous attendees and their most famous lines and quips. And give you a personal tour around the round table after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. 
take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood," she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. All right, Tom, it's lunchtime here at the, at the Algonquin. Let's assemble this cast of characters, this, uh, this table full of nuts here. There were certain people that were there more often than others. Right, a core group of diners. Right, and so we're going to kind of focus on just some of those names. Right, you've already told us Alexander Wolcott. Mm-hmm. Um, but another writer, another journalist that we should turn our attention to, who is really key to the, the tradition of this lunch, was a man named Franklin Pierce Adams, who was known to his readers uh, for decades as simply FPA, his initials. He was probably the best-known columnist in New York for many decades, hmm. which is an incredible thing to think about. He was born in Chicago in the 1880s, and got a job writing for the Chicago Mail as a young man, and it was through a connection there that he landed a job at the New York Evening Mail. In New York in 1904, he started a column called Always in Good Humor, uh, which was widely read and made him very famous, and when he was poached to work over at the New York Tribune, he brought the column over and renamed it The Conning Tower. So the conning tower, you're giving me a funny look. <laughs> the, but the conning, t- not the, the cunning tower. No, the conning, okay. C-O-N-N-I-N-G. Mm-hmm. The conning tower was was a kind of grab bag of humorous tidbits and musings, uh, some of which FPA wrote, uh, but many of which were submitted by readers and by other writers. Oh, so it was a curated experience of laughter and wit. <laughs> It w- Greg just came up with that, by the way. Yes, it was exactly uh-huh. that. Um, and when you look through, you know, I may have stayed up last night reading some conning towers <laughs> from the Tribune. But yeah, he would usually open it up with like some verse, some classical verse, and then go into little humorous asides and jokes and little musings. 
many of which then are attributed to other people, readers who had sent them in, but other things that were submitted by contemporary writers, including the likes of Dorothy Parker, George S. Kaufman, E.B. White, and others, you know, just to name some people who also sat at the round table. So it sounds like he being an arbiter of wit is sort of setting the tone for the table. Mr. Adams here next to Mr. Walcott, you know, you can't be some sort of a wall. You can't be a wallflower and hang out with this or a wallflower or a wallflower. <laughs> <laughs> no. And, and he also wasn't afraid to plug his friends into his column. That's what they were all doing. After all, here's an example from Saturday, October 29th, 1921, um, after a little funny and pessimistic poem at the top of his column entitled, Every Silver Lining Has a Cloud. (laughs) (laughs) He had a little piece with the subhead, Heaping Ashes of Fire. Quote, naive, elusive, honest, bright is H. Brune's Seen Things at Night, the name of the book. Brune, fairest of men, ignored my something else again. So in this little four lines, Mm -hmm. he actually plugged his dear friend and another writer at the Tribune, Haywood Brune, who Mm -hmm. we'll talk about here in a second, who was a critic. He plugged his work and also sort of chided him for not having given him a great review. You know, this is all very, like, insidery. <laughs> but readers were following the relationships between these people who were diners at the Algonquin. So people were actually following, you know, the fact that, oh... Uh, Franklin Pierce Adams just sort of dissed Brune, who sits <laughs> well, next to him at work and at lunch. Well, they appreciated the insiderness of it, right? I mean, what they kind of people fantasized about it, being part of it, right? They were being let in mm-hmm. through their writing to this exclusive social club. But that verse specifically mentions Brune, right? Guy. So, and Brune is also sitting around at the table. Right, and working with him at the Tribune. Uh, He wrote book reviews, he covered sports, he even covered drama. He was married to a woman named Ruth Hale, who was another member and a famous feminist, but also a member of of the Round Table. They had an open marriage, Hmm. um, which was very, you know, avant-garde. And he, you know, by the 1920s and really into the 30s, he was a, he was also known as a social reformer and a union organizer. And Brune in the 1930s would help organize the newspaper guild. A lot of these people did have um, political components to their careers, which we kind of overlook today because we see them as fabulous wits who are writing like creative, funny things all the time. But many of them were involved in causes like the union. That's right. And, femi- and, and feminist causes. Like, like Ruth Hale. Like Ruth. Yes. Right. She was also a journalist, but she also helped organize the Lucy Stone League, which was a women's rights group that encouraged women uh, to keep their maiden names. And in fact, in 1921, Ruth Hale made history when she was issued the first passport in America to a woman using her maiden name. The passport didn't just say Mrs. Haywood Brune. So we're going to be mentioning a lot of names here. I want you to visualize each person around the table as we're talking about them, right? So we have Mr. Wolcott. We have Mr. Adams. We have Haywood Brune and Ruth Hale here. Right. So I should mention that there were actually many women at the round table. There were mostly men, but the women who were there were very... Uh, were very powerful, notable, and independent women who could certainly keep up toe-to-toe with all of these 
sometimes curmudgeonly cantankerous columnists around the table. Right. Ruth Hale was not invited because she was Mrs. Haywood Broom. Right. <laughs> she was there because she was Ruth Hale. Now, of course, the meat and potatoes of the round table, if you will, involved a fun little writerly trio, at the center of which is perhaps the most famous member of the round table. That would be Dorothy Parker. Born Dorothy Rothschild on August 22nd, 1893, in a beachside community of Long Branch, New Jersey, although she lived in the Upper West Side and, and clearly carried herself like a New Yorker. She cultivated her personality and her image uh, even at a very young age. Uh, an exceptionally good writer, and even occasionally bawdy, frequently writing poetry that had such sharp, witty content that would have been seen as unbecoming to a female writer to just a couple decades before. But when she was 22 years old, she got her first poem published in the magazine Vanity Fair. Today's Vanity Fair? The same magazine? The name comes from this older magazine, but it was quite different. Uh, very different indeed. It had originally been called Dress and Vanity Fair. It was a men's magazine. It slowly morphed into more of a social magazine that was filled with clothing and jewelry advertisements. Anyway, Dorothy's first poem in this magazine was called Any Porch, which was a series of non sequiturs of things that she had overheard people oh, say uh, in a rhyming form. Here's, a, here's one clip from this poem. I'm reading that new thing of Locke's. So whimsical, isn't he? Yes. My dear, have you seen the new smocks? They're nightgowns, no more and no less. <laughs> so just sort of random things that she would hear, but also very lovely, very poetic. It has a, it has a beautiful cadence to it. And she also um, was published in FPA's column over in the Tribune oh, right. and would later say that it was FPA who had, quote, raised her from a couplet. Well, it, it's, well indeed, her rise was very rapid through the magazine ranks here. That poem was published in September of 1915. Just two years later, she would be hired as an assistant at Vogue magazine would soon be taken under wing by various editors who would be who would be impressed by her talent and tenacity and then she would eventually move on to work at vanity fair itself so by the time that the round table was in full swing say 1920 on mm -hmm. she was already famous and and widely read she was widely yeah she was she was a critic she was becoming more of a household name but not quite there yet she would often be accompanied at these lunches at the round table by two of her close friends and co-workers at Vanity Fair. The first was Robert Benchley, also a writer at Vanity Fair, a close friend of Parker, and, and one who dabbled in the theater himself. He's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. He's a, he, mixes, he mixes writing and performing. He would be f a famous freelance writer through the 1920s. He famously said, quote, It took me 15 years to discover that I had no talent for writing, but I couldn't give it up because by that time I was too famous. <laughs> <laughs> so so then you have Dorothy Parker, who's a quite small woman. You have Benchley, who is a, a, an average size fellow. And then the third part of this trio is a man named Robert Sherwood, who also worked at Vanity Fair, notable perhaps, at least on um, first appearances, uh, for being quite tall. He was six foot eight. People, wow, he really <laughs> stands out in a crowd. Yeah, people would often say when they were walking down the, down the street that they looked like a pipe organ. 
And Sherwood was also a journalist. Yeah, he worked at Vanity Fair also. Actually, I take that back. In 1920, Dorothy would actually be fired from Vanity Fair for writing a scathing review of a particular show. And, you know, there were complaints and so she was let go. Out of solidarity, Benchley and Sherwood also resigned. So uh, that kind of locked these three characters in with each other. And I imagine they all got rehired pretty quickly somewhere else. Yeah, because they were, and partially because of their their appearances here at the round table, mm-hmm. you know, they became these public figures. And it, it wasn't difficult for them to get hired. Okay, so we have journalists and columnists here and critics. Now we should also mention those who worked in theater who sat at the table. And to represent them, we'll bring in George S. Kaufman, who wrote or co-wrote 45 shows on Broadway and won two Pulitzers, one for Of the I Sing and also one for You Can't Take It With You, two very well-known shows still today. He got his big break into journalism because, again, FPA published him in his column in the Tribune, which led to a job. Uh, So he started at the papers, um, but then moved into theater. And throughout these years at the round table, Kaufman would be writing or producing shows on Broadway and would be collaborating with others on these projects and also getting reviewed by some of the critics right there at the table. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got Wolcott and sometimes you also had Parker <laughs> reviewing Kaufman's plays. And notably in 1922, Kaufman, well, the, the entire table decided to stage their own show. <laughs> it ran for one night only at the 49th Street Theater, which was near 8th Avenue and has sadly been demolished. But this was a comic review that was pure farce. It was written by, and it starred basically all of the main members of the round table. Now, at the time, the theater where they produced the show was staging a popular Russian musical review, mm-hmm. Russian-inspired musical review called La Chauvresserie. So the group decided to stage their farce and called it No Serie. Uh, <laughs> And they staged it on a Sunday night when the theater would have normally been dark, Sunday, April 30th, 1922. And they played for a New York inside theater audience (laughs) that seemed to be very receptive. And all the men sang, including FPA and Kaufman and Wolcott. Dorothy Parker wrote a song. Now, speaking of stage stars, there were actually many quite famous people. And by famous, I mean famous from, from film work. Uh, you had Tallulah Bankhead would sometimes show up. Harpo Marx um, was a regular at the round table. One of the biggest names that would make infrequent appearances would be the great Edna Ferber, the author of Showboat, the book that would give us the musical, and Cimarron, the book which would be the basis of the Academy Award winning movie. And you say sometimes show up because she was she was prolific. She was such a she, she was working. She wrote all the time, so it's not like she had a lot of time. It's not like she had a lot of room in her schedule to drop by the round table. Also, I should add that she became a great rival of Alexander Walcott. I imagine he had a lot of rivals, but Ferber was quite popular in the 1920s, and so it might have been a little bit of jealousy. On his part, she even described Alexander Wolcott as, quote, a New Jersey Nero who has mistaken his pinafore for a toga. 
the burns. <laughs> you know, we talked about the journalist, but we should mention a very important editor who also sat at the table, and that was Harold Ross, who was born in Aspen, Colorado in 1892. And who we mentioned earlier as being the editor of Stars and Stripes, this military newspaper. That's right. He went from small town paper to... Uh, roving the nation as a, as a journalist to getting the, the gig at Stars and Stripes in Paris, where he eventually became the editor of the newspaper and worked alongside FPA and also Alexander Wolcott. So he knew these two from Paris. And when he came back to New York after the war, well, he was in pretty good social standing and brought into uh, the Algonquin to meet with everybody else over lunch. But he also met somebody else in Paris, a young American woman named Jane Grant. They fell in love. When they came back to New York, they got married, and Jane started working in various newspapers, including in the city section of the New York Times as a reporter. They would eventually buy a house at 412 West 47th Street, way over by 9th Avenue, and it became a regular hangout for the entire group. Oh, yeah, we should add that this, even though they had lunch here, right. they also, they would often go on vacations together, right. they would play cards together, they would go drinking at various taverns around the city. Right, but Ross and Grant's duplex that they owned over on 47th Street wasn't just a hangout place. It was actually a permanent residence for some of them, including Alexander Wolcott, who mm. moved into their house <laughs> and stayed there for years. Bunk beds. Well, I mean, to be fair, they did sell shares in their house, hoping to make it kind of like a, a cooperative mm -hmm. to cover costs and also make, you know, kind of like a shared living space for their artist friends. But we know Mr. Ross from another more important thing than just this community house here in Hell's Kitchen. Right. He, what he and Jane Grant really wanted to do was start their own humor magazine, a weekly, that would be sophisticated and reflect this sort of cosmopolitan moment that they were all living so the two of them saved their money and, and they sold investors on the idea and they finally raised enough cash to launch the magazine with a first issue on Thursday, February 19th, 1925. And that, of course, is The New Yorker. So in many ways, we could say The New Yorker was born from the Algonquin Roundtable, certainly from many of the players around the table. Well, I think you'd say it was born over in their, their house on West 47th Street, but the, the players around that table became integral to the success of the paper, even through its lean years, through its bad, you know, early years where they only had a couple thousand subscribers and it looked like the thing had to fold. You know, it was because of these powerful writers and critics and columnists who they and artists who they could get to contribute to their magazine because of their connections that the New Yorker was able to weather that storm. And we should note that their first office, in fact, was just right around the corner at 25 West 45th Street. So a very quick walk to the Algonquin mm -hmm. and their rent was free. How did they swing that? Well, the building was owned by the Fleischmann family. And one of the New Yorker's most important investors was a man named Raoul Fleischmann, whose family owned the General Baking Company. He played poker with the men of the round table, and he knew them all socially. So he was in the outer orbit of the round table, and it was because of Fleischmann's capital that they could get started. Fleischmann as in like the yeast, Fleischmann Ye yeast. Yes, in, well, in the extended 
baking family because mm-hmm. Raul's family made their money through bread and baking. But regardless, yes, he was the guy to talk to when you were raising dough. <laughs> okay, well, actually, speaking of dough here, I am getting hungry. I'm, we've now pictured all these people around the table. Mm-hmm. But I the not, table is full. But what's on the table? What was the scene is like? I feel like I'm I'm kind of like I'm not quite there yet. I'm not quite in the scene. Greg, are you saying what I think you're saying? That I think that now that we have set the table, it is time to go visit the Algonquin and soak in a little bit of atmosphere. That's what I hoped you were saying. <laughs> so why don't we head to West 44th Street, and who better to meet up with than Kevin Fitzpatrick, who wrote the 2015 book, The Algonquin Roundtable New York, A Historical Guide. Let's head uptown and meet up with him. Okay, so, well, Greg and I are along 44th Street now. 44th Street has a lot of great uh, historic institutions on it, but the one that we are focusing on today is, of course, the Algonquin Hotel. And we have arrived. And waiting inside for us to take us back to today's roundtable is Kevin Fitzpatrick. Let's go inside and say hi to Kevin. Mm -hmm. Just opening up the big door here. Oh, well, thank you, Greg. Good evening. evening. Kevin, hello. Welcome to the hotel. How are you doing? Kevin, how are you? You just walked through the door like 92 years ago, Harold Ross and Haywood Brune would have. (laughs) With the same sort of gait and composure, I'm sure. (laughs) You greet everybody that way, don't you? Are you hungry? You want to stand at the round table? Yeah, why don't you take us back to it? Sure. Right back here. He's taking us to a table in the back next to a mural. Kevin, hello. Uh, Thank you for inviting us here to this hallowed spot here at the Algonquin. We are currently sitting around, well, a round table um, at the spot where the original round table would have been. Is this the table? This table is from 1998. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> um, so it's just a, it's just a merely round table. It doesn't have the it doesn't have the nicks and bruises of a thousand martinis. That the it's other also one much smaller. The original round table you could sit around sixteen around the board. Mm. This is good for about ten. And we're sitting at this round table next to a a, a mural that depicts this famous group uh, sitting over lunch together with the with most of the famous attendees pictured. Yes, this painting's from 2002. It's by Natalie Asensios, and it was completed for the centennial of the hotel. On the bottom left is Dorothy Parker. Above her is Robert Benchley. Leaning in over the table is columnist Franklin P. Adams, otherwise known as FPA. Uh, in the center is Robert E. Sherwood, the, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright. Leaning in to talk to him is Harpo Marx from the Marx Brothers, and yes, he did talk. <laughs> no and did not always wear a wig. And didn't bring his harp to the hotel. In the bottom is Harold Ross, um, founded The New Yorker here in 1925. Leaning in to talk to him is Alexander Wolcott, who created the Shouts and Murmurs column for The New Yorker. Bottom right is another columnist, Haywood Brune, uh, born in Brooklyn, grew up on the Upper West Side. Uh, leaning in next to him is George S. Kaufman, who wrote 44 shows, about half of them hits. In the top right is Edna Ferber, who won a Pulitzer Prize in 1924 for So Big. And she's talking to Mark Connolly, who won a Pulitzer in 1930 for The Green Pastures. So this depicts, I guess, some of the uh, 
biggest names at the round table, and they would have gathered right in this very spot. These, of course, are a lot of very familiar names, but of course there were many, many more people who were invited to join them at the table who perhaps uh, aren't as well known. Um, I mean, there's so many we could just go down the rabbit hole of, of talking about them all. Do you have any particular favorites or any, any anyone that you have a sort of a soft spot for that sometimes gets unrecognized a or few, left out of this mural? A few that aren't here, which is kind of surprising. Um, Frank Sullivan, who wrote for The New Yorker for 50 years, he created the Christmas poem at the back of the issue. Uh, he's a fantastic humorist. Deems Taylor, who was on the cover of Time magazine, and if he's remembered for anything today, it's being the narrator of Fantasia. He wrote the first great American opera, um, so he's not on here. But who's really left out are a lot of the women. There's only two of them that are on in the painting. So a few of them are um, Ruth Hale, who was married to Haywood Brune, and she was kind of the proto-feminist. She was a really big believer in uh, women's rights, and she was a suffragette. And Jane Grant, who was Harold Ross's wife. And, you know, I like to say without Jane Grant, um, echoing what Ross said, there'd be no New Yorker. The two of them founded the magazine together. Um, she was also the first female reporter in the New York Times City Room. Kind of an extraordinary thing, right? I mean, I guess, uh, you know, in the 1920s to have a bunch of single women mingling with single men, you know, at a table during lunchtime drinking must have been, I guess, rather shocking sight for many who well, were many of the guests here. You know, the entire time the roundtable met was during Prohibition. Right. And they removed the bar in 1917, so there was no official alcohol being served at the lunch. I mean, Brune always carried his, his hip flask of gin and bitters, mm-hmm. so there was definitely some drinking going on. But they weren't serving martinis to them at the table. It seems like today we have this popular notion that the Algonquin Round Table is somehow synonymous with martinis at lunch, right? That, that, that this is somehow the glamorous lifestyle of the 1920s working reporter or critic or, or writer. It's but you're saying really, that that wasn't the case. It's not really accurate because, you know, first of all, back then before World War II, everyone worked six days a week. So you worked on Saturdays at least a half a day. So they were coming here and then going back to work. So you couldn't really be boozing it up very much at lunch particularly if you're a reporter that then had to hit a deadline. Right. So there's a lot of people who work for afternoon newspapers, so you still had a deadline to meet. But then they would all meet later at the speakeasies on 49th Street. And so the drinking to, took place later. The same group, different spot. Yes. So they would, and Mark Connolly talks about this, is they would see each other for lunch, go back to work for a few hours, then meet up and go to the theater. Because you know, people like Parker were going to a show five, six nights a week, then go to a speakeasy. Just to step back a little bit, I'd like to sort of envision just what their lunch would have been like. Like, what time did it start? Did they all arrive at the same time? Did they all just stumble in one by one over the course of two or three hours? Well, Peggy Wood, who was a fantastic actress for, on stage for more than 50 years, she said lunch usually started about a half 12. You would come in on your own steam. No one just barged in. You had to be invited or known to everyone and, and be brought to the table. And then Wolcott could give thumbs up or thumbs down. If he didn't like you, he was like, Nero, you know, don't invite this jerk back again. So wow, he, powerful. He, yes. Well, he could be your friend, but then when he would see you, say, hello, repulsive. So he really ran hot or cold. Oof. So what they're eating is two things. One is popovers, which is kind of like a celery-baked like bread thing, which the hotel still makes. They do really well. Is that like a pot pie? A little bit, but there's no meat in it. It's just um, like celery is on the inside. So it's oh, a very literary thing to eat. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to get you the recipe yeah, you know, to put on the, put on the site. But the hotel does serve it here at different times. Um, and they would get eggs and they would get anything that was cheap, uh, coffee and tea. 
because they didn't have a lot of money. You know, this is when they were still kind of making the names for themselves. So they get the cheapest lunch possible, a lot of soups and a lot of sandwiches and things like that. So nothing very big. Okay, so again, this idea of the high life coming in and having cocktails and like an extravagant lunch is just not at all the case. No. They're coming in and having scrambled eggs and no, coffee. I, I mean, Dorothy Parker was working for Condé Nast at the time and not being paid very well. So they weren't um, very flush yet. So they weren't making boatloads of money. The most well-off people were the producers who would be coming in much later to the scene. But all of these guys at that time were on their way up. So they weren't really flush yet. And that, I guess, is the key to why this is like an iconic cultural institution in many people's minds is not exactly what they were doing, but it was the fact that it was a bunch of people who were about to become very, very important into New York culture, right? Well, this was an early example of networking. So they were collaborating a lot, and those collaborations are still around today. Most famously, The New Yorker. When Ross was starting it, you know, everyone thought he was a jackass. I mean, here was a guy that never even graduated from high school launching a magazine. And so when he and Jane Grant were showing a mock-up around town, they said, well, we have an editorial board. You know, we have Robert Benchley, we have Frank Adams, we have Dorothy Parker. Now, these folks had absolutely no intention of helping him, but they did. <laughs> so he was using their names, he was using his yes. connections to sell and get financing for the magazine. Yes. But he would eventually use them. Oh, they yeah. Would all be Parker was them. in the very first issue. She wrote the very first drama review. Or people like Kaufman and Ferber, they were at an out-of-town tryout for a show they collaborated on. She's sitting on the floor, and the producer says, well, if it flops, we'll just put it on a showboat. And she said, what's a showboat? So within <laughs> six months, she was chasing the very last showboat in North Carolina. The next year, she writes the novel that then becomes the first great American musical. So there's a lot of those little things that they collaborated on here that then led to bigger things. So if, this, if these lunches started, say, in 1919 and lasted, let's say, for 10 years or so, that decade saw their fortunes change enormously. Yes. And it really ran out of gas before 1929. Once talking pictures came in, a lot of them went west to work in Hollywood. And a lot of them had a lot of success at that time, so they couldn't come here six days a week. A lot of them weren't here very much, particularly Ferber. Um, Edna Ferber would only come here on Saturdays or when she made a big deadline because she was always writing. And so certainly as they got more and more famous and more and more um, wealthy, they couldn't just take off an hour and a half, two hours in the middle of the day every day to come down here. And as Mark Connolly said, trying to know when the roundtable ended is trying to remember how you fell asleep the night before. <laughs> right, they, sure. It just wasn't there anymore. Mm. So essentially, it, it just sort of faded away as a, as a sort of a, a way to, th to think about it, that there wasn't like a, it wasn't like there was a last meeting or anything. It was just one day, like just people just started kind of dropping off until one day there was no one left. Well, some of them did meet up later when they went to California, um, the Garden of Allah, which was a very famous place in West Hollywood. Parker and Benchley were both living there at the same time. And, you know, if Deems Taylor was in town or Connolly was in town, they would, you know, come and see them. Um, but that was it. Um, they came here after Wolcott's death in 1943. So there were little reunions from time to time. And, and Wolcott had a summer house that they would visit and things like that. But that group, it was over. But when they started in 1919... They were working in the popular forms of media at the time. They were, they were the newspaper reporters. They were involved in the theatrical business. And this was mainstream media. Yes. The interesting thing about the roundtable is they had their fingers in everything. 
someone like Margot Gilmore started off as an actress in silent films, worked all the way up into live TV. You know, George S. Kaufman started off in newspapers, then went into playwriting and television. Frank Adams was an early radio star on a, on a, on a game show. So a lot of them had such control of different parts of mass media that they then seamlessly went into others. You know, Parker went from, you know, magazine writing to book publishing to poetry to screenwriting, wrote Broadway shows. So they all had some tie to some part of mass, mass media. I still want to talk about the location of this table because I had read in your, in your great book that it changed locations a few times. Yes. When they first met, they were in that room behind you, which is now the Oak Room. Off to the side here. Okay. It was called the Pergola Room, and they sat at long banquettes. Uh-huh. Then, in 1919. In 1919. So they sat at these long tables next to each other. But Frank Case, who was the first general manager of the hotel, saw how famous this group of people were, so he moved them here and put them at a big round table and had one of the city's first red velvet ropes going around them. And people knew they could come in and sit in the corner and watch Robert Benchley and Dorothy Parker because they became very popular very quickly because there were so many columnists sitting there. And the columnists always needed material. If you're writing a column six days a week, what's easier to do than to say, you know, what did Robert Sherwood say at the table that day? Right. Then it gets in a column, then it gets picked up by the wire service and goes coast to coast. Well, and really today the, the hotel still celebrates that tradition. I mean, we're sitting next to a mural depicting that very table. You don't know what an editor of The New Yorker looks like or someone from Random House looks like, but editors and writers still come here for coffee or cocktails or whatever, so it's still a literary landmark because it's still being used by people in the business as a meeting place. And that's what I like is even 100 years later, it's still being used. We're still in the center of publishing, even though some of the businesses move around and Condé Nast went downtown. But people still come here for, you know, publishing talk. And we have to ask, of course, if we're talking about the Algonquin Hotel, we have to talk about the famous cat who lives here, the most famous feline in town. Well, there's been a cat on the premises since 1930 when Frank Case adopted a stray. And the story goes that John Barrymore said, who was a longtime resident here, said, well, you can't just name him Rusty. You know, this is a literary and theatrical hotel. So they named him Hamlet. So ever since all males named Hamlet after his great role... And females, for whatever reason, have been called Matilda. So, so if the prime time for the, for the roundtable lunches were the 1920s, you said by the 30s they had fizzled out. Yes. What did people think about them, or what did the, even the people who had participated think about that period in their lives later on, in the 1930s and 40s? Sure. Parker always tried to play it off. She always said it was just a bunch of wisecrackers hanging out. Others, like um, Peggy Wood, you know, she thought it was one of the best times of her life. And Wolcott, for the rest of his life, was trying to start clubs and organizations to, to kind of keep that spirit alive. But the legacy today is, I mean, just in the last 20 years, there have been references to the roundtable on The Simpsons, Family Guy, Seinfeld, Gilmore Girls. There's always references to the roundtable. So people then like, well, who are these people they're talking about? It's like this, got this aura, this majesty of like old New York, of witty writers sitting around, collaborating on hit shows. And that's, I think, what people, you know, um, attach themselves to. And when did you get so interested in the story of the Algonquin and the Roundtable? It was around 99. I'd been working on DorothyParker.com for a while. A website that you started? Yes. I started DorothyParker.com in 1998. And just reading about her friends then led me to their books, their plays, their shows and things. 
and putting it all together and starting to collect, okay, who was a member of the round table? What did they do? So there's a lot of, there's about 30 of them. So there's some of these others you don't hear about so much like Lawrence Stallings or Mankiewicz. And, and I thought those guys were just wonderful to study. And so that's what really led me to it. And, and you've since written three books on the subject? Yes. So the Algonquin Roundtable in New York, it's a historical guide, and it's all the places they lived. A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York, uh, which is just about Parker. She, she was a big Upper West Sider, saw those locations. And Under the Table, Dorothy Parker Cocktail Guide. <laughs> I'll have to check that one out. And by the way, I also want to plug your, your book on Governor's Island, Governor's Island Explorer's Guide, and your new book, which is coming out just next month, right? Yes. On New York City and during the years of World War One, Yes, World War One, New York comes out in time for the anniversary, the centennial, which is April 6th. Excellent. Kevin, thanks a lot, and thanks for giving us the opportunity to sit, sit in front of the icons for an afternoon. It's been fun sitting at this roundtable and not drinking with you. There has not been a single <laughs> drop of alcohol at this podcast. I can guarantee that to our listeners. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, guys. All right, we're back in the studio. Tom, I had a blast. That was uh, great. Like dining out at the Algonquin. Just about a hundred years too late, but hey, <laughs> no, it's still, it's still, it's definitely worth a visit, and anybody can walk in and and at least look back at, at today's roundtable and see the mural that we mm-hmm. were describing. You can also visit our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I will have many other pictures of some of the major players of the roundtable and some pictures of the Algonquin, not too many pictures of diners at the roundtable, no, as no, um, none of them exist. Not many photos. No. For those who support us on Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys, you will have the extended version of our conversation with Kevin Fitzpatrick, which includes a little walking tour of the hotel and a visit to one of the suites. Mm -hmm. And a quick note for our patrons who have joined us on Patreon. We do, as you know, put out these special behind-the-scenes extra podcasts for almost all of our shows. Fortunately, Patreon has upgraded the way that we can distribute those podcasts to our patrons. You can now, if you go to the Bowery Boys page when you log into Patreon, you will see a URL for an RSS feed. You can just copy that and paste it into your podcasting program that you use on iTunes or however you listen to uh, this show. You can subscribe directly to the Patreon Extra as well so that you don't need to go hunting down any extra audio files. They will come directly into your feed with all your other shows. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. You can find us at your local bookstore as our book, The Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York, has been out for a little while now. You can pick that up and get a wondrous tour of Old Manhattan. And finally, you can also find Find me in the Bowery Boys spinoff podcast, the first, Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. The newest story, Tom, is a tale of robotics. The story of the very first industrial robot, which was in New Jersey uh, and debuted in 1961. Wow. You are just all over the place, Greg. (laughs) You are a modern-day Alexander Wolcott. (laughs) When I was in the theater of war... And one final thing we haven't asked in a long time, but it is helpful if you have not already done so. Head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It is very helpful for new listeners to find us. And don't forget the advertising survey that was mentioned at the very beginning of the show, podsurvey.com slash Bowery. That would also be of great help. 
And really, that's all we're going to ask from you now, dear listener. Thank you so much for joining us at the Algonquin. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.